According to a 2020 national survey by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, among 52.9 million adults with any mental illness in the United States, 46.2% received mental health services in the past year, which means more than half did not. The numbers are similar for adolescents. The most common reasons for not receiving services, not being able to afford the cost of care, not knowing where to go for services, and believing they can handle the problem on their own without treatment. What if a brief online single session intervention could help? Single session interventions are a growing area of interest among researchers and clinicians, and today we talk about one specifically designed to address non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. Although it has not shown to actually reduce NSSI behaviors and so we cannot advertise it as effective at reducing self-injury, a randomized controlled trial, or RCT, shows there are some benefits. To talk more about the specifics of this brief single-session intervention for addressing self-injury, known as Project SAVE, I am joined today from Stony Brook University in New York by clinical psychology PhD student Mallory Dobias. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Mallory DeBias is a third-year clinical psychology PhD student in the Lab for Scalable Mental Health at Stony Brook University, a clinical intervention scientist and clinician. Her research uses brief scalable interventions to improve youth's access to mental health treatments, particularly for self-injury and suicidality. She received her undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Texas at Austin in December 2016 and has done mental health promotion and prevention work across multiple Texas public high schools prior to beginning graduate school. So I'm excited to have a student with us today that is focusing her research on non-suicidal self-injury. So I want to welcome you, Mallory. Welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to be here today. How did you first become interested in researching non-suicidal self-injury? Sure. Yeah. So to back up just a little bit, I knew for some time, especially with my work in Texas public schools um, before coming to graduate school, that I really wanted to do work to increase access to mental health care. A lot of areas that are rural areas, it's harder to get access to mental health treatments. I'm from a rural area in Texas, so definitely some personal experiences combined with kind of seeing that at scale at various points in my work in high schools in Texas. And so I had that combined with kind of the the idea and the fact that this field is unfortunately much less good at actually identifying who is experiencing suicidal thoughts or engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. It's just a really difficult outcome to predict. So it's tough to know who is engaging in self-injury and when. So those two things kind of combined, there's kind of like this false or this misconception that like we're better at identifying people who need treatment, especially folks who are engaging in NSSI or feeling suicidal than we actually are. And so that kind of led me to really wanting to improve access for the vast proportion, a good proportion of folks engaging in NSSI. There are all of the regular barriers to treatment, structural things like cost, waitlist length, provider availability, 
on top of possibly additional individual level barriers, things like stigma, things like fears of disclosure, fears of, you know, involuntary hospitalization. And so that kind of led me to really wanting to work toward increasing access to care among these groups. The fact that you are working with Dr. Jessica Schleider on single session interventions for people that can do an intervention on their own in just a short amount of time, I think can really increase that access because there are, like you said, long wait lists even here at our clinic. So you came up with this single session intervention and you've done some research with it and you presented at ISSS just this last year at the conference and I really enjoyed your presentation and have been curious how you came up with the idea, which I believe you called Project Save. How did you come up with that idea and who is it for? The kind of background and why I wanted to study NSSI kind of led to figuring out ways in which if like a lot of folks um, and the majority of youth only receive modally one session, then how can we really maximize that session for people who only have one kind of encounter? So that's kind of where a single session piece kind of comes from. And then like there's the piece of like trying to design something that can reach folks who may not be at a point where they either can access treatment or they're not ready to reach out for, you know, one-on-one clinical care, a whole bunch of reasons. But Project Save is really designed to be, like you said, self-guided, confidential. We hoped that folks would feel a little bit more safe, particularly youth, because often youth don't really have control over whether or not they receive mental health services. Those are often, there's a lot of gatekeeping kind of uh, factors there. And so we design Save with the two kind of most common functions or reasons for why youth report they engage in non-suicidal self-injury. The first being to kind of cope with difficult emotions and help regulate difficult emotions. And the second being to take out a difficult emotion on themselves. They're angry with themselves or to punish themselves in some way. And so we designed the intervention to speak to both of those functions, but especially that kind of second piece, because a lot of interventions that exist focus really primarily and heavily on emotion regulation. That makes sense, given that it is the most common reason. And we also recognize there are a lot of people that also report that second reason as well. We designed SAVE to speak more to how to cope with urges to self-harm when experiencing self-hatred, when experiencing a desire to punish oneself, and really elevated levels of self-criticism. Designed for teens, but could be used for anyone, really. We hoped to make it pretty accessible. That's really what we hope to do moving forward too. So you mentioned the the modal number of sessions being one session that adolescents will typically attend. And so you're really trying to give that one session all the bang for their buck and being able to address what's most important. I recently attended a, a conference called the Society for Adolescent Health in Medicine, and one of the youth, young adult presenters made a comment. It was a video recording during one of the presentations and talking about mental health problems. A parent sometimes may feel like a failure, or that's a failure on their part because maybe their child needs mental health treatment. But this youth said that it was not a failure. It's not a parental failure for your child to need treatment, but it is a failure to not get them the treatment when they have that availability. And hopefully this meets that need. Yeah, I think that that's a really like powerful sentiment. There are plenty of folks who need mental health services, want mental health services, and that need like far outpaces like what our current structures are set up to serve. 
definitely not advocating for replacing broader mental health services, but providing single session options, providing options for supports that people can find online, I think is one way to try and provide supports for people when they need it. That will be really important. What will be really important moving forward is to make sure that folks who are actually accessing those services or getting beyond the initial group who's already in treatment, but also reaching people who might not be in care or like people who are between therapists or between sessions. Like there's lots of ways that I think single session interventions online can help improve access. Yeah. Even to supplement therapy, I think you are referencing. Yes. When it comes to Project SAVE as a single session intervention, I think there are two things that I'd like for us to talk about. First, the primary elements of a single session intervention, I think, will be important for us to understand and then move into the nuts and bolts of Project SAVE in that single session intervention for non-suicidal self-injury to walk us through that. But before we go through the details of Project SAVE as a treatment, can you tell us a little bit more about the primary elements of single session interventions in general? Sure. Yeah. And I can, I can say that with the caveat of like, this is how our team does it. Um, I'm sure there's a million new and exciting ways that single session uh, interventions can be approached. And I look forward to seeing those happen. I think that the more options we have, the better. That said, we tend to follow a kind of specific structure in our lab that speaks to clinical techniques, but also to social psychology and, and really trying to make the interventions that we put out there, like engaging for people, stigmatizing, you know, affirming, empowering. So those are kind of the key tenets of what we're trying to do. We call the structure of single session interventions within our lab BEST. <laughs> our lab loves acronyms, which <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed, but uh, the B in BEST standing for brain science kind of explaining some of the concepts we introduce in a way that's supposed to one, be engaging, two, be destigmatizing and and kind of normalizing experiences that a lot of people might share. One example might be to talk about how like all brains can jump to conclusions or like talking about how the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems tend to work in people. When we talk about brain science, we also try really hard to do it in a way that's engaging, but not deterministic. So very much focusing on how like individuals neurobiology is not fixed, but rather malleable. It can change over time and the ways that people cope with things can very much shift over time as well. How they feel can shift over time as well. So that's what I mean by brain science. Anecdotally, I can say that like reading feedback from our programs too, like lots of people really like this component, um, <laughs> which, you know, I think is neat. So that's B and then E is empowering to like an expert role. Um, so, so often in the existing mental health treatments that we have, they're very much can be approached from a didactic or like hierarchical perspective. And I think something that we try to do with our single session interventions is like from the beginning, introducing this as a way for us to better understand their experiences and to use the information they share with us to better help other youth who are going through similar circumstances. And we try, we, we try to like follow through with that behaviorally. So we like iterate our interventions based on their feedback. We also ask for their permission for them to like share optionally 
their advice for other teenagers. And then we, again, with their permission, can post an anonymous set of advice to like an advice board that we have on our website, where they can go and read what other folks have said. And they can also share what they've learned with other people. And that reads really nicely. It's a nice segue into the S and best, which is saying is believing. So one of the exercises we try to do in all of our interventions involves like asking them, asking you to like rephrase or restate kind of things that they've learned in their own language, but through the lens of explaining it to someone else who's experiencing like a similar difficulty or related difficulty. We hope that helps like solidify learning. Also, we hope to learn from what they add and what they have to think as well. Often people find that they can be kinder to themselves. They can practice more grace toward folks when they're not talking explicitly to themselves, but to someone else in that position, which is interesting to hear people grapple with too and, and the, the quality of feedback we receive. And then finally, the T and best is testimonials from others. So a lot of our interventions involve personal narratives from other people with lived experiences, and it really tries to center those voices as much as possible throughout the beginning, middle, and really end of each of the single session intervention components. So those, I think I got them all, all four, but those are the, the main components that we think about when we say a single session intervention, at least within the lab for scalable mental health. B-E-S-T, so to summarize, brain science, so you do that to normalize, enhance the credibility of the messages you're sharing. E for empowering youth to be a helper or in the expert role because they have a lot to share and we have a lot to learn. Yes. And then the S being saying is believing exercises so you can help them solidify it into their memory and be able to consolidate that for their learning. And then T for the testimonials from valued others. Have you received feedback on which of these four is most helpful or has been most valuable maybe for you as the researchers? I wish we knew the answer to that better. I think we have some qualitative feedback more broadly about the entire program, but we haven't yet been able to like distill down into like each of those core pieces or separate them out since they are pretty well like integrated throughout the entire program. One of the things that I will probably talk about more at some point during this interview is the direction I hope to take is very much more in a qualitative direction, very much more in a like youth-centered and user experience research and design perspective. Doing that, I will, and hopefully we will, have a better sense of which parts of this structure is really speaking to people. I have anecdotal things I can say, like I, I read all of the feedback that people give. It's my favorite, one of my favorite parts of this whole process. I think people like just simply having like some representation in like what they're reading about and learning and being able to contribute to that representation as well. We have a lot to learn still, um, a lot of room to grow. I could speculate, but I think it's something that I really hope to get a better handle on. And I think our research is going to move in that direction too. And we will talk about future directions shortly. So I definitely want to give you the opportunity to share your thoughts on that. People are really interested in the nuts and bolts of interventions, of treatments, what therapy might look like. So in this case, a single session intervention, what that might look like. So could you please walk us through kind of the nuts and bolts of each of these elements of Project SAVE, specifically as applied to non-suicidal self-injury and what people might expect? Sure, absolutely. 
Right off the bat, we really highlight the role that youth have in finishing the program. We open all of our programs with an introduction of who we are and really why we value their voice and their opinions. And we pretty quickly link to the advice center that I mentioned before so that they get a chance to kind of see the receipts of like, we're listening. We actually like will do something with your advice, of course, with your permission. But we want people to see that really early on in the process and evidence of that as well. So beyond that, we also talk a little bit about why we think looking at treating and and evaluating and researching non-suicidal self-injury is so important. So we talk a little about how common it is and, you know, different types of experiences that other teenagers have shared with us. So we bring in some of those personal narratives as well. And we talk about the reasons for why certain folks might engage in self-injury, specifically, again, highlighting things like coping with difficult emotions and also kind of feeling this sense of self-criticism or self-hate that culminates in a desire to like punish oneself. We talk about both of those things. And then really highlighting the personal narratives piece and highlighting some of those key pieces of information. We also start to talk a little bit about how even though non-suicidal self-injury really in the short term can boost mood and provide some positive affect, we talk about how in the longer term that actually can play a role in this cycle where there's more urges to self-harm, to engage in self-injury, and kind of feeling worse over time. So having more and more difficulties coping with these negative emotions and maybe even having more desires to self-punish. So we talk about that cycle from a science lens, but also from a personal narrative lens. And then we start to talk about how each and every time someone chooses an an alternative kind of coping mechanism to self-injury, that makes progress toward this like shift that's going on. So bringing in some brain science, talking about how things are very malleable, how making changes in behavior can over time shift how people are kind of responding to stress. And so it's not a 100% make this change overnight, but each time you practice something different or try something new, that counts toward making a meaningful change. Then once we talk a little bit about like how changing behaviors and not engaging in self-injury, how that can change thoughts and feelings for the positive over time, we bring in examples of alternative coping strategies that other young people and youth have shared with us that they've used, what we know from existing mental health treatments. So providing kind of thorough examples and basically giving them a chance to identify like what might be most helpful for them. What are some of the examples that you share? Absolutely. So we talk about the science of activating the parasympathetic nervous system and so how there are strategies that folks can do like holding on to ice cubes or putting them on your face by engaging in progressive muscle relaxation and we link to like a video that shows practice of breathing and relaxing muscles. We also talk about other methods of distraction, like holding really tightly onto a soft blanket, listening to particular music, going for a walk. Those are ones that are often said as helpful from folks with lived experience as well. Those are pieces that we were able to kind of put together and we kind of let people choose what they think might be 
more or less helpful. But those are just some examples. Sounds like the TIP skills from dialectical behavior therapy, the TIPP. We had a DBT episode recently, but yeah, the examples that you share, like the T being for temperature mm-hmm. and then the I being like an intense exercise and then the two Ps being progressive muscle relaxation and paced breathing. So it's, yeah, it just reminds me quite a bit yeah. from, which is evidence-based. Exactly, exactly. We we try to provide examples of alternative coping that's like backed by working cognitive behavior behavioral therapy work and distress tolerance promotion. And like, definitely those are strategies that we recommend and try to provide some guidance on how, what that would look like. Also including like ideas that other people have shared with us that they found particularly helpful. We let people kind of choose from that list and talk about how they might be able to implement one or two of those in their life. So those are some examples of some alternative coping strategies that we introduce. And then we wrap up by asking people to provide advice. So that saying is believing. We share an anecdote or a personal narrative from someone who is going through a difficult time and is, you know, having experiencing an urge to hurt themselves. And given, you know, what they had learned throughout the program and also their own set of expertise, what are some things that you might share with them to help encourage them or to even share some of the strategies you find or think might be helpful for you with this person and try and help them get through that difficult moment. And that's when we ask at the end if they would be willing to share that advice, of course, anonymously, then we are able to wrap up and that's pretty much the gist of it. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure there's a piece or two that I'm missing there, but that's the general structure of how we walk through that intervention. So it's pretty short. How long does it typically take people to complete to go through the program? It's about 30 minutes is what it's designed to be. And it is really short. We tried to keep it pretty straightforward because it's a lot to put in even 30 minutes. We also tried to, at the same time, make it a little bit personalizable too. So one thing I didn't mention already I'm thinking of is that we let folks kind of choose the reasons for why they engage in self-injury based on like whether they chose, you know, I'm coping with negative emotions or I'm, you know, using this to punish myself. We have different branching logic in the intervention itself to talk more either about the parasympathetic nervous system or more about self-kindness and and practicing changing behaviors in small ways to eventually lead to greater compassion in the long run. And we provide both for people who click both, but we try to make it as personal as it can be as much as something that is very short can be. But yeah, that's the goal, hopefully. So you've been collecting data on this. So I suspect you've done pre-test and post-test. Are you doing any longer term follow-up? Sure. Yeah. So we did a a really big randomized trial of this intervention in over 560 teenagers from 13 to 16. Specifically, we were testing out this intervention for folks who both engaged or endorsed recent engagement and self-injury, but also endorsed feelings of self-dislike or self-hatred. So again, trying to make sure that we were reaching folks who might most benefit from Project SAFE. We tested both post-intervention, immediate post-intervention outcomes, but we also followed up with people three months later. And I will say right off the bat, something that I really want to highlight is that we found some positive and some null findings with this paper and all of our primary outcomes of interest, including non-suicidal self-injury and thoughts of suicide were null, which means that when we looked at those outcomes three months later, we didn't have any evidence that our intervention project SAVE helped reduce the frequency of non-suicidal self-injury or the frequency of suicidal thoughts relative to a supportive therapy. 
type online program. That was disappointing news, absolutely, for myself and my team. And at the same time, we also found that there was a significant decrease in self-hatred in the intervention group compared to the control group uh, immediately following the intervention. So for folks who were shown Project Save, they had a decrease in self-hate right after the intervention relative to folks who were shown supportive therapy. Well, I appreciate the candidness there, and I know it's a little bit sobering, the results, as far as not necessarily decreasing the frequency of self-injury, at least over the three-month period of time. So I'm I'm sure you have a a lot of ideas of how you might address that or improve it so there would be a greater likelihood of addressing the non-suicidal self-injury. But you mentioned there's an acute decrease in self-hatred. Was that also at follow-up three months later or just after immediately doing the intervention? That was just immediate. By the time that we followed up with everyone at three months later, there was a significant within-group decrease for both the control folks and Project Safe folks, but there wasn't a difference between those two groups, which to me, how I would interpret that is that like we can't say that Project Save decreases self-hatred in the long term. We can say that there is a short-term decrease that happens for people relative to supportive therapy types of things, which I think probably pretty closely mirror a lot of advice centers and things that you might see just freely available online. One thing I remember, though, from your presentation is that another takeaway, another result was that there was an increased desire to stop self-injuring. Can you talk a little bit about that finding? Absolutely. Not only was there a decrease in self-hatred for folks who were shown safe, but there was also an increase in desire to stop future self-harm behaviors. That was interesting as well. And I will say too, that we have been able to start to roll out a like versions of save in like more naturalistic type settings, which I won't be able to go into huge detail today because it's not wrapped up yet, but stay tuned. I'll talk about it more in a bit, but basically all this to say is that even in more naturalistic settings, we're seeing the like short-term effects replicate, or at least they seem to hold up even when it's not in a like very, I don't know if sterile is the right word, but RCT, very structured setting. So, I think there's something positive there too, because some people who self-injured don't even realize that it's possible to stop. So it's not that they necessarily don't desire to stop. They just might not feel like that's possible. And so to instill that hope, even after doing a 30-minute intervention like this, I think is a good finding. Another thing, thinking about the acute decrease, the short-term decrease in self-hatred, when you were looking at the reasons that people self-injure toward the beginning of the intervention and have this branch logic where they would get a piece of the intervention tailored to them based on the reason that they self-injured, what were those reasons that they could endorse? Yeah, we tried to kind of have it overlap with the two main reasons that we were addressing throughout. So either coping, doing it to cope with difficult emotions, doing it to punish oneself, or kind of an other option where we let them put in whatever reason it was that they were engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. And that was a more qualitative type response. A lot of people endorse both. Some endorse one or the other, but a lot of people ended up seeing both arms of that section of the intervention. What were some of the qualitative responses that people wrote in there for the other as a reason for self-injuring? It was interesting because some of the qualitative responses like This is why we do qualitative research, right? Some of the qualitative responses I might have from my own lens and set of experiences put into one of those two categories. And obviously the person who wrote it felt like 
it didn't belong in one of those two reasons. So for example, someone saying they felt really lonely or feeling undersupported or having some sort of interpersonal experience that was really invalidating. Those are just a handful of examples. Again, like I don't have, I haven't done thematic coding on it, so I don't know how many people have endorsed each one, but I, I think it's really worth engaging in qualitative work for this reason. Well, I asked that because I'm really interested in the self-hatred piece that improved temporarily, at least, after yeah. the intervention, because some people self-injure out of self-hatred. And I differentiate that from self-punishment, because for punishment, there must be some sort of transgression or breaking of a rule that requires a consequence, hence a punishment, which I think is qualitatively at least different than self-hatred, sure. which is kind of an attitude toward oneself or an approach toward oneself, which you might have more focus on the self-compassion there. So with a self-hatred, I, I would wonder if breaking it out into the specific functions of the behavior, such as self hatred as a function if the intervention really did a good job to decrease the actual NSSI behavior yeah. for those who self-injure specifically for that reason because that's what they self-injure out of self-hatred and it decreases this intervention decreases the self-hatred then they might not need to self-injure yeah I think you're getting to something there that like we were hoping <laughs> we would do and I think that in the future something that or if i could go and do it again i might have wanted to try and better reach folks who endorsed and self-injury specifically for the reason of self-hatred or even like even beyond that maybe there's the primary reason because we know that often that exists at the same time as wanting to help with regulating with emotions it also like Many people report both, but at different points in their lives or like even day to day for different reasons. And so whatever reason is feeling like most salient to them in that moment, even I think could be valuable. But to do that, I think we need to have short options. I think we need to have options that remain relevant to people if they like want to come back and try it again. And that's a lot to balance all at once too. <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot to balance, a lot to track. But I, I do think there's value specifically yes. for the self-hatred. I mean, I'm just thinking of a 2015 study that looked at the functions of self-injury related to actually attempting suicide. And of course, the function that was most strongly associated with attempting suicide was self-injury to avoid suicide, which makes sense. Yeah. And then I believe the second though was self-injuring out of self-hatred. If your intervention is able to decrease that temporarily, then maybe it could decrease any acute suicidal thoughts in that moment and have some life-saving capabilities or, or just hopeful coping. So that's why I'm excited about that piece, even though it is a little bit sobering, the, the rest of the results. I just, I want to give it credit where it is due though. Yes, absolutely. I think too, like the utility of helping folks better handle self-hate definitely can provide value. And people told us that it provided value for them too. Folks rated the intervention as acceptable. So when we asked them if they found it helpful, if they'd recommend it to a friend, things like that, our ratings were across all of those categories above four out of five. And whenever we asked folks for qualitative feedback, we definitely got a good share of this is what I liked about this piece and like, thank you so much. Trying to provide a bite-sized and helpful support tool that has enough nuance where people feel like they're being heard and represented well, and at the same time, like can be scalable and can provide support for a lot of people who want or need it. Earlier, you alluded to next steps and future directions, particularly based on a lot of the qualitative responses that you received from people. So what are your next steps and future directions for your projects? 
Yeah, I am so glad you asked. Um, So we want to really make sure that a version of SAVE or even like future single session interventions for NSSI, for self-hate, for, you know, a variety of outcomes and and experiences that they're like helpful and reaching people. I don't have much interest in like having the interventions exist in like a PDF forever. (laughs) So we're hoping and are actively working to try and work with folks who can embed these sorts of supports in social media type platforms. And that is the piece that I hope to have more information on soon. But what I can say is, as we are starting to do that, and looking at pre-post outcomes for shortened, even more shortened versions of our interventions, People still report it's helpful. People who do it still seem to be experiencing some decreases in self-hate and some increases in desire to discontinue future NSSI as well. I also think that just so many iterations, one of the benefits of a single session intervention that's online is that you can make changes pretty quickly and roll it out. And so I think better attending to this feedback in a more systematic way. So doing thematic analysis to be able to answer some of these questions better. Focus groups, even like co-design on future versions of interventions with folks, I think will be really, really, really important. As well as like seeing if people actually like complete um, the intervention too, like looking at the quality of feedback, but also like completion rates drop out. What are people like saying with their behaviors too? So I hope to take a more like user experience research type approach to this work moving forward. And I do have your paper right here that you published these results in last year in behavior research and therapy. I'll be sure to include a link to your paper in the episode notes, although I don't know if it's open access. I have a version that's on OSF that's, yeah. Which I was going to ask, how can listeners access this intervention and your research related to it? And where can they go? Great question. All of the papers, or vast, vast majority of the papers that our lab produces, including this paper, are on SciArchive and linked to on OSF. So preprints are available for folks to read for free. With the intervention, our team went back and forth on whether or not to share it on the original intervention platform since we did have the null findings, but we also felt like it could be helpful. So we did share a slide deck that folks can look at on OSF. If this other research that we're doing in future iterations seems like that's helpful, then we will be rolling out other versions of that too. And I'm really looking forward to seeing directions this takes and finding new ways to to share, maybe not even just save, but other support options for people for free too. I actually downloaded that PDF that you're mentioning, so I have my own copy of it. So I have, I'm pretty familiar with the content in it. One reason I really wanted to interview you for this episode Is there anything else that you'd like to mention that maybe we haven't addressed? I just really, I feel like this is a really new and emerging space. I feel like it has a lot of promise. I think we need to start thinking creatively about like how to reach people. I think existing treatments have been really helpful for so many people and our current systems are just like not set up to 
to reach everyone that they need to reach. They're inaccessible for so many people. And so I'm excited that people are interested in this work. I am so excited for more people to do this work. I'm excited for folks to do it transparently and be honest about what it does and what it doesn't do. I think I really look forward to continuing to work with people to see where where single session interventions can take us. They do provide value. It's just a matter of figuring out how to best optimize that. Yeah, I think bringing that up again, as far as we can't overpromise what is offered. And I think people listening to this podcast, hearing about this intervention, I do need to be clear that it's the null findings that it did not fully address decreasing non-suicidal self-injury urges and behaviors. Yes. But it did have some of the results as far as decreasing self-hatred, at least in the short term, as well as increasing people's desire to cease self-injuring. Which is huge because there's a lot of folks who like don't think self-hate can be moved at all. Mm. That it's a, like a stable type thing. And I think it's cool to see movement in that. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating take on that. Based on our conversation today, kind of wrapping things up, pulling it all together, what would you recommend to parents of adolescents or children who self-injure? I would say that if your kid is having a conversation with you about engaging in non-suicidal self-injury or dealing with any of the particular challenges we talked about today, that really the best thing you can do for them is to listen to them, figure out what they need from you in that moment and do everything you can to provide supports for them. I think that we have to encourage folks to get mental health treatments as much as they possibly can and acknowledging all of the limitations. There are other resources out there. So kind of knowing about options like crisis lines, warm lines, knowing about important organizations like the Trevor Project (laughs) and being, being willing to have regular conversations about mental health with your kids like ahead of time so that they would feel more comfortable coming to you with something like this. A lot of this is parents finding out about these behaviors is one of the biggest barriers to youth sharing their experiences with non-suicidal self-injury or suicidal thoughts. And there's this big fear that parents will find out or that the fear of hospitalization is really real as well. And so like doing what you can to support them, just like the other person you mentioned earlier in the interview, like reinforcing the idea that thank you for sharing this with me and we'll work together to do what we need to in order to help you feel, feel better, I think is important. Yeah, the fear, not so much that parents will find out, but that they'll find out and respond poorly, I think is really the, yeah, a lot of that concern. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians or other researchers? I think that really recommending keeping an open mind about like what treatment can look like, being willing to be transparent about research findings is key getting training, explicit training and like working with folks with lived experience of non-suicidal self-injury and thoughts of suicide is really important. So many folks experience both. And so it's a really high probability that, you know, you'll be working with someone who, who either needs or wants support on one of those two things or both. And yeah, I think, I think the open mind piece is important, myself included. <laughs> I have to remind myself to keep an eye on the work that's coming out and, and think about how to apply it in ways that best serve the people I work with as a therapist. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? I would just say that your perspective, your experiences matter so, so much. And that type of expertise is going to be what really improves uh, mental health treatment moving forward. It's our job as a field to like 
continue to improve treatment resources and experiences for folks. And so being able to know about the options available to you and share your experiences and expertise where you feel comfortable will be really valued. And to the researchers and clinicians with lived experience too, like you were a key part of this process. Your expertise is really valued and I am continuously learning and growing from so many different people. So thanks. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mallory, and for sharing about your research and your passion for addressing non-suicidal self-injury as well as suicidal thoughts and single session interventions and making interventions accessible to people that otherwise might not have access to them because of limited resources or just not enough clinicians nearby. And I'm really excited that you'll be getting your doctorate not too long from now, so we'll be calling you Dr. Mallory Tobias, and (laughs) we'll be seeing your name, I'm sure, in research and hopefully at future IS. And hopefully even this year, I know in June, we have our next IS meeting, our conference. It's going to be virtual again, but that'd be great to see you there as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It was an honor. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.